You don't build a team in one moment. You build it through the highs and lows of several activities where people feel that you've got their back. Today, we're joined by a truly inspiring guest, former Secretary of State of Rhode Island, Nellie Gorbea, as she shares her atypical path to becoming the first Latina to hold a state office in New England, leading the charge for fair and transparent elections and transitioning back into civilian life. That and more. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Nellie Gorbea. First off, I'd like to thank you for your service and all the wonderful things you've done for the state of Rhode Island. Well, Thanks thank for joining you. me today. Yeah, thank yeah. you for having me on your podcast. With that, can you share your journey to becoming the first Latina Secretary of State of Rhode Island? Well, it is probably not the kind of path that most people think of when they think of statewide elected officials, but it is my path. And I think one of the myths out there for elected office is that there's a particular specific path that you have to take in order to get there. So I ran uh, for statewide office in Rhode Island in the 2014 election, and it was my first ever run for office. And as a friend of mine said, really, you're going to run statewide as your first one? And I'm like, it's a state of a million people. And for some other state, that's a large or small city, depending on where you are in the country. But I'm originally from Puerto Rico and arrived in Rhode Island after having gone to Princeton and marrying my college boyfriend, who ended up being a faculty member at the University of Rhode Island. So by the time I had finished a master's in public administration at Columbia University and we got married, he had a job. I didn't. And I came to Rhode Island and, and quickly fell in love with the place. There are actually a lot of fun similarities between Rhode Island and Puerto Rico, including size and how people relate to one another and how we see distances. Everything over 20 minutes is a very long trip. But but yeah, I fell in love with Rhode Island and it's become my home. And I have three kids who I've, I've loved being able to raise here. So because I didn't have any family in Rhode Island when I moved here, I I got involved in my community, which is what I'd done in high school and in college. And so quickly sought out other Hispanics that were actively engaged in, in Rhode Island. And so started attending in the mid-1990s something called the, the Governor's Advisory Commission on Hispanic Affairs. And I knew these had to be public meetings because of my public sector background. And so I showed up for a few months in a row and suddenly I was being invited to be a member of the commission. And many of the friends around that table are still friends today. And and we went on to do a lot of other things together to improve Rhode Island and, and to get involved in Rhode Island politics. And so it speaks to the importance of other spaces, other non-traditional spaces, particularly for non-traditional folks, to be able to start being themselves as people who have uh, ideas that can contribute to the public good. And so I think that's really important both for women and for people of color. So... Through that, I worked in the nonprofit sector here in Rhode Island. I was a, a program officer at the Rhode Island Foundation. I was in investment banking and public finance in the region. I 
eventually did travel back to Puerto Rico to work in government in Puerto Rico, but quickly found my way back and, and, and got involved again and became president of the Rhode Island Latino Political Action Committee. So that again became this volunteer effort to get Hispanics in Rhode Island more involved and, and not necessarily to elect Hispanics, but to elect people who had what we thought were the real interests of the community at heart. And, and that made a big difference because some of the candidates, some of the white candidates that we supported ended up offering jobs to people who worked on the campaigns. And I became a deputy secretary of state and uh, through that entered Rhode Island state government. And so it's a, it was a very zigzaggy road. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, I got up one day and I decided I would be an elected official. It was more like, where can I find a space to, to help and to work in? My background is originally public policy. I had worked also in the nonprofit field in, in affordable housing policy issues. So by the time the 2014 election came around, you know, I had met most of Rhode Island's elected officials at the statewide level. I had met a lot of legislators. I had testified. And that's the beauty of Rhode Island in a small place. You can actually meet your state senator and the, and the congressman that doesn't even represent you. Uh, within a few years of moving here, if you're interested in politics. And they, they are regular folks, just like you and me. And that helps kind of take away the aura that I think, you know, oh, I, you only see these people on TV. And and so I, I thought, you know, I ran the office as director of administration. I was a deputy secretary of state. I know most of the guys who run for these offices, and some of them are awesome. And some of them are like, yeah, if that guy can run, I I can probably do it too. So I went on to do it and I was that candidate that wasn't supposed to win. And I ran against somebody who spent three times more money than I did and for the endorsement of the party and all of the labor groups. But I knew more about what I was talking about than he did. And, and I really thought that I would connect with voters on the basis of my vision for the office. And it turns out that I did. And I was the surprise elected office winner in the 2014 Democratic primary. And then I went on to win the general and served eight years as an elected Secretary of State of Rhode Island, which I absolutely loved. Fantastic. And sometimes it's those windy roads that gives you the experience and the skill set to really push through and break some barriers down. So I appreciate the story. You know, along, along the way, who were some of the mentors or role models you had that influenced your path and career in politics and public service? You know, my, my biggest mentors were my parents, you know, and it's funny because I, as I've had to tell my life story a few times, I came to realize that one of the questions you get a lot is like, well, when did you decide to run? And, and for women, particularly, it is really this one moment because you, you second guess yourself constantly about whether or not you should be doing this, whether, you know, you're not seeing people like you and certainly not as a Latina. I ended up, you know, Rhode Islanders broke his, you know, in history when they elected me. I became the first Hispanic elected to statewide office in all of New England. And so, so there was nobody I could look up to, you know, as a, as a mentor, if you will, in the field. But when I look back on my youth, I did run for student council uh, back in middle school and in high school. And my mom was a big booster. She was the one who would say to me, yeah, you can totally do this. And sat up doing construction paper signs and stuff like that with me late at night. 
and my father has been a big uh, ally and a big mentor just to help me think about outside the box. He's an engineer. And so it was really my parents that have been the wind beneath my wing from very, very early on. I knew that whether I win or lose, they would be there for me. And, And that's a big, big plus to have in your corner. So then, you know, as I became an adult, I found mentors in in what I would say are, are non-traditional places. Again, because there were no Hispanics or Latinos or people of color even in a lot of the places that I was going into, whether it be investment banking or, or community philanthropy or or just community organizing. It was it was people um mostly white men, actually, who who early on in my career, this is in the mid-80s, early 90s, kind of basically checked in on me and said, hey, you know, and, and it, we, we started a conversation. And from there, I realized I could rely on these guys for advice on things that I couldn't figure out. And then there were some very strong women, again, my former boss at the Ford Foundation, Diana Bermudez, uh, who was, has been in, in a wonderful mentor all my life. Uh, it's almost like a big sister. So it's, again, it's not like you wake up one morning and you say, oh, I'm going to have a mentor. You know, it, it's just you you have these relationships with people over time and you realize, wow, as I look back on it, yeah, they were my mentors. So it wasn't where you said, hey, you want to be my mentor? And it just yeah, happened. No, no, it doesn't quite work that way. You know, like, so one of my mentors has been Howard Sutton. Publisher, former publisher of the Providence Journal. He, when I was, when we were running the clock on the on the administration where I was deputy secretary of state, he he and I had served on the United the United Way board, which is, by the way, another really important lesson that I share with a lot of people who are interested in elected office. Serving in nonprofit boards and community boards, like that com- governor's commission on uh, advisor commission on Hispanic Affairs are really fantastic ways to expand your network in ways that interest you. I was always interested in, in, in improving the community good. So being on the board of the United Way was fantastic. And I got to meet other like-minded people who happened to be presidents of banks or the publisher of the paper. Or, and so I, I highly recommend community service as a way to, to really branch out and and early on in my 20s and 30s, I'm now in my 50s, they served as really wonderful learning grounds for my own leadership skills. So, so I met Howard Sutton at the United Way board. And, and fast forward years later, it's not like I was running into him all the time, but you know, he sent me an email. He said, what are you doing after you finish your stint at the Department of State? I said, well, I'm actually, I'm not sure. And, and so we had lunch and he was just very, very helpful in helping me think about what I should be doing next. And so, yeah, you have to be open to, to, to getting help from a wide variety of people, and that, which is another lesson learned that I try to instill, particularly on young people, because there's this myth in, in, in the United States that you somehow make it on your own and nothing is further away from the truth. Any, anybody who's gotten to a, a top position has gotten help from a lot of people. I used to tell people when I was, particularly young folks, when I was Secretary of State, I wake up every morning and I have lots of people helping me. And what's important is to pay it forward. 
to help others as, as part of your time in that space and afterwards. So thanks to, to Howard and to Diana and to many others. Yeah, anytime anybody asks me for help, I'm there to, to do whatever I can. Fantastic. And you've done a lot. You've mentioned your interests and passion around community service and being involved early, if that's the route that you want to take or thinking about what activities energize you. And then conversely, where mm -hmm. do you spend time to recharge? So it's interesting. My One of the places that I recharge in is, is actually, I was a Roman Catholic and I... I have over my life had a lot of times when, when it is really that, that faith tradition that, that has helped re-energize me and refocus. I, I subscribe very heavily to the peace and social justice component of, of my faith. And I think it's, it's part of the reason I do what I do. And so, so that to me is, is really, really important. Hanging out with my family is a big source of recharge, whether it's my kids now and or it's my, my parents and my siblings. They're mostly in Puerto Rico, but we try to see each other. And, and I talk to my parents probably every other day. It's just one of those things. And then finally, you know, my I think it's really important to surround yourself with people that, that you can be you. Because re-energizing sometimes involves a kick in the pants or a shoulder to cry on or a, a space to be celebratory and not worry about if somebody thinks that you're, you're blowing your own horn. So having those spaces is, is really important as a leader, because particularly when you're in, in spaces like being an elected official or you're at the top of whatever organization you are, just by human nature, you, you don't get the full story. A lot of people are very complimentary. A lot of people are, are telling you all the awesome things that you're doing. And so sometimes... You know, bad things happen and then everybody sort of scatters and you're not really sure what happened and you need to kind of refocus, re-energize, sort of figure out what that is. And so you have to have that circle of mentors, friends, family that can support you. You're figuring things out when things don't go as planned. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's important to build a sound and true, authentic group of people around you that can either check you at times or also push you and support you to pursue your uh, passions there. So in thinking about building teams, when you have that opportunity, when you have the choice, what do you look for to surround yourself with? So, well, first of all, it, it, it's very rare that you can actually build your team. A campaign, you can build your own team, but, but most times you're walking into a set team that you then add some people into. And I think that's, it's really important to, to make that distinction. So, First and foremost, I'm looking to have people that complement my weaknesses, of course, but also are honest with me about what they are seeing. I don't need somebody to tell me what they think I'm already seeing because I can see that. And so honesty and truth telling and comfort and, and respect is, is really, really important to me. When everybody starts agreeing with me, I start wondering what I'm missing. Got it. And then in terms of ways to motivate teams, sometimes there are dips uh, in motivation. What have you found to be successful to get the best out of them? Yeah, I, I believe in, in treating others like you would want to be treated. So 
whether that be constructive criticism to, to make sure that the person knows that you're coming from a place of appreciation or whether it's, you know, people are just, you know, hard at work. You, you need to find social outlets. I think one of the biggest challenges in the public sector is that there isn't money in the budget to do the social interaction type stuff um, that I feel is really necessary to team building. Private sector companies, for the most part, have much more of that. So I used to use my cam campaign account to do the office picnic for my employees. I mean, there were like 50 employees. I couldn't do it out of my little pocket and I couldn't do it out of the state's budget. But having that summer outing, that holiday gathering, the celebrating people when they're their birthdays or when there's a project that wrapped up, making sure that we had some sort of celebration and we went out to lunch or something. Those are all very, very important because you don't build a team in one moment. You build it through the highs and lows of several activities where people feel that you've got their back. And so that, that feeling of, of this is a second home is, is really important. And I think my sort of background as a Hispanic also factors in. I, I love gather social gatherings and I love parties. So one of the funnest things that we used to do, and I can't claim that it was my idea, it was actually one of my team leaders would do karaoke. And so we'd all get to the senior team members would get together for karaoke. And that was actually always very, very fun. And it's important. It's important to create those other spaces that, that allow people to relate to one another in something other than just the work, even as fun as awesome as the work may be. Wonderful. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of community building, a lot of social interaction and just getting to know the team members as people as well to understand what are, what are some things to help motivate and connect mm -hmm. folks to the mission. So and taking a step back at around your time with the state, can you discuss your leadership style and how you were able to effectively implement new initiatives during your tenure? Yeah, it's interesting because maybe because a lot of my career, I've been the only one in the room, whether it's be as a woman or as a, as a Latina. My leadership style is to, is to observe, to listen early on, try to figure things out, and, and then to be inclusive, to figure out ways in which to connect the people in the room to the task at hand. And so at times when I wasn't the leader in the room, it was how can I help my leader succeed and, 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 and figure out ways that maybe he, and it was mostly he hasn't seen can help move this project forward or that other people around the table just weren't seeing because they're not connecting the dots across silos. So, so I guess my leadership style is very inclusive. And I think that that's one of the funnest things about being in leadership. You know, if you're lucky in life, you find what it is that you love to do. And, and for some people, it's getting up in the morning and healing people. Other people love to build things. There's other people who love to have kids learn, as challenging as that might be for, for others. For me, it's, it's connecting people in ways that are unexpected and that help us get to a better place as a community. Thank you. And another question is, how did you promote transparency, innovation, and accountability while in office? 
So you do it from the very moment you start and you make sure that everybody understands what the mission and vision of the organization is. And then what are the ways in which it's acceptable to get there? You have to be very upfront from the very beginning. So for the first day on the job, I made sure that as part of our mission vision process, it was clear that the transparency it was big. Now, in order for there to be transparency, there has to be a level of trust that when things do go wrong, you're going to, as a leader, take part in, in, in fixing it, right? You're not going to just throw somebody under the bus. And, and that's important. So, so making sure that employees know or team members know that, that, that we succeed or fail together is really big. And then it's just showing through your own actions that transparency is important. Yeah, that sense of psychological safety in groups is, is important. And you also mentioned that it, sometimes it has to be, things have to be recommended in ways that are accepted within groups in large established systems like the government. How do you balance tradition, what's been done before, how things have been done before with innovation, new ideas? Well, the biggest thing that you can do is to make sure that everybody's feeling heard. And that's not easy. A lot of times traditionalists or conservatives are feeling besieged by the innovators or the progressives. And you, you have to take the time to listen to all the sides. That doesn't mean that you agree with everybody, but you listen to them. You know, one of the one of the big moments I had in my first term was trying to pass legislation that helped completely modernize you know, election systems at Rhode Island. So we passed online voter registration, automated voter registration. We got new voting machines. We enrolled the state in a multi-state voter registry exchange. A lot of things. Early voting was sort of at the end of things. So we did a lot of things to transform the way people are able to vote and, and update their voter information in Rhode Island. At the very beginning of this, I had conservative Democrats within my own party who were opposed to the online voter just registration bill. And as I spoke to them about why they were concerned, I realized two things. One is they were concerned about the integrity of the system. And that those concerns were based on a misunderstanding of what the systems are that I was trying to create. And so I encouraged the leader of the group that was opposing this to come to my office and to try to register himself online in the online voter registration systems of Connecticut and, and in New Hampshire so that we could have a conversation with a screen in front of him about what it is that I was talking about. Because it became very clear that that was not, that he just thought that he was going to be able to, on a phone, enroll or register as many people as he wanted with fake names and fake data and all that. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. There's actually, it's actually, there are tons of checks and balances in the system. So 
starting with the fact that you can't really register online unless you already have either a driver's license or state ID. So it's not, it, it, it wasn't just sort of a password. So he, he sat there for about 45 minutes and we, we went back and forth, back and forth. And then at the end of it, he said, well, okay, I see how this is not what I thought it was, but I want your word that you're going to protect the integrity of the system. And I said, Rep, you and I both agree on that. I absolutely do not want people registered to vote that are not supposed to be registered to vote or are fake or whatever. And, and I will absolutely safeguard that. And he supported the bill and, and it passed almost unanimously. It might have passed unanimously. And it, and it was a really telling story about you know, just sitting down with the opposition and saying, okay, where is this coming from? And is there a way that I can explain to you what I mean that might make it easier for you to feel heard? And, and know that that, that that is being addressed. And, and, and I think that's sorely missing right now in our civic space. Being heard. Okay. Thanks for sharing. And taking one step back here today, the world is changing really fast. What are some critically vital skills leaders must have to thrive? Adaptability to change, real passion for learning. Things are changing so, so fast. I mean, the advent of AI to our world is, is really scary, almost, almost scarier than social media and the internet. And I say that as a parent now. So, so adaptability, a passion for learning are, I think, are key. And then that aspect of listening to people really sitting back and listening to people so that so that you can come up with that path that's going to work for the greatest number of, of folks got it and were there any times during your tenure where maybe your values or principles were tested how did you how did you handle situations where it might not have aligned as nicely as you would have liked? I think the hardest part in, of, in, the, in the current culture right now where, where people are not sitting down and listening to each other because to listen to someone is to somehow agree with them, which is, is a really bad space for our culture to be in. It was having conversations with folks that that had seen me in a picture with so-and-so who is the nemesis of everything we stand for. I was having a conversation with them. That doesn't mean that, that I've turned on my values, that, I, that somehow I'm less of a leader. Um, but I do really think it's really, really important to listen to those that you don't agree with. And, and that when I say that our best public policy decisions are when we have a diversity of opinions, perspectives, and backgrounds, around the policymaking table, that really needs everyone. And, and so that, to me, has been the hardest part of being a leader at this time. It's, it's people that are, that are supposedly your allies suddenly finding that they're, they, they can't trust you because they saw you talking to so-and-so or, or hanging out with the so-and-so. I just, you know, look, there are different kinds of leadership. Mine, mine is, as you can tell, sort of very inclusive, very sort of bringing people together, connecting. It's a connecting kind of leadership. 
There are others whose leadership is, you know, go against the barricades. And there's a role in, in society for all of them in a sense, right? It is the people that those run for the barricades that kind of push us and force us to kind of rethink things and not become complacent. So, but for me, I think what's important for each of us is to feel, okay, what, what's, what is that space that I feel most comfortable being a leader in and, and maximizing that for the, for the benefit of the, of the public good? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. And you mentioned earlier that there's a lot that's changing in the world with the intense amount of information and the immense amount of information out there, content, news. What are ways that you recommend citizens can become properly informed and in touch with events? That's a really tough one. And I'm, I would be lying if I told you that I figured it out. I do try to look at coverage of a particular event from a variety of angles as a way to try to figure out so the truth sort of lies somewhere in between. I, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a lot of work right now to figure out where, it's not even the truth, because even the truth at this point can be seen from a variety of places, but but where do you stand in relationship to, to, to where things are and how do you see things is, is an ongoing, ongoing challenge. I'm, I'm right now working at Salva Regina University as a visiting fellow at the Pell Center and focusing on, on cybersecurity issues, particularly misinformation, disinformation in Spanish language. Turns out social media companies, which is where a lot of Hispanics are getting their news, particularly Spanish-speaking Hispanics, are very under-resourced with regards to other languages, other languages other than English, because simply they're just not focused on that. And so if that's where a particular segment of our community is going to for their news, it's going to create problems. And so we need corporate leadership in these companies to, to take this responsibility much more seriously. So... That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. And as you're shifting over and transitioning to more of a civilian life, what are you looking forward to the most? The best thing has been to be able to spend time with my kids, to not be so stressed on how am I going to squeeze everything into 24 hours that probably should take 30 or 36. That part has been absolutely wonderful. And last, what's something that you believe leaders, people should keep in mind that just they strive to be upstanding citizens and members of society? You mentioned listening. Is there anything else? Inclusion. Um, and, and inclusion is really important, whether you're in a room full of Hispanics or you're the only Hispanic in the room or whatever group you happen to be identified with. It is really important for us to reach out to others that are not in the room as decisions are being made. It's, it's critical to get to the best solutions. That diversity of perspectives, thought, types of people, like you're mentioning, it's, it's an important piece of the puzzle to help shape the decisions that will inevitably impact all of our communities. Yep. Well, 
thanks again, Nelly, for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate you. Good luck and thank you for listening. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you learned something new. If you like what you heard, rate us five stars, tell a friend, and tune in next time. I'm Vidith Huet. Believe in yourself.